Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is a dear friend. She is an incredible entrepreneur. She's an inspiration. She is a star on Netflix, uh, My Own Orthodox Life, now two seasons in the bank. And uh, we are thrilled to have with us today, Julia Hart. So welcome, Julia. Thank you, Matt. I'm so happy to hang out with you. You know, gosh, we've known each other now for quite a while. We've been We've been hanging for quite a while. It's nice to, you know, to create family and community. Absolutely. So we met on stage at Advertising Week at Hudson Yards uh, several years ago. And I will admit to you, I had not watched any of the show. Tisk, tisk, tisk. Well, I then watched, of course, <laughs> so I would be prepared. And your story is an incredible one. And I want to get into Plus Body and all the things that are happening now. Uh, activism, which is particularly timely, given what's going on in the world. Yeah, but let's do a little bit of the Julia Hart backstory. Born in Moscow, 1971. End wow, up in, very end good. Up, <laughs> our, our crack research team here knows what they're doing. End up in Texas. But take us through sort of the early. Let's, let's blow through this pretty quick because I want to get to, you know, 2023 and talk about the future. But let's mm -hmm. give a little of the backstory uh, just yeah. so we sort of build that foundation. So, you know, my parents and I are immigrants. We came to this country when I was five. We were traded for green in the Jackson Bayonville. Um, we moved to Texas and I had a very lovely, normal American childhood. And then when I was 10, my parents became extremely religious, ultra Orthodox. And then they decided Texas wasn't religious enough. And they moved us to a community in upstate New York called Muncie. Um, and the gates of the modern world shut completely. In the community I lived in from the time I was uh, almost 11 on until I was 42 years old, it's the 1800s. It's no television, no movies, no radio, no, no newspapers, no contact to the outside world. In fact, right now my son is in Israel. He's in yeshiva refusing to leave with all the craziness that's going on. And while I admire his courage, I'm his mama. I want him to come home. Um, and I can't text him. I can't, I can't send him a voice memo. I can't call him with a video because he has what's called a kosher phone. And a kosher phone, the only thing you could do with a kosher phone is dial. It's like a rotary phone. It has no internet access, no email, no texting no WhatsApp, no video, nothing, which is really, really difficult. But that's the world I grew up in. I grew up in a world of kosher phones where the access to the outside world was completely cut off. Um, I grew up in a world where women are defined by their biology, where they're, for the minute that you are born a woman, your life is already set. Your purpose is to be a wife and a mother, to have as many children as humanly possible, to be subservient and obedient to your husband because that is what you're taught is the only path to goodness and that is the only thing God wants for you. Uh, and, you know, I wasn't allowed to educate myself. I didn't go to college. I don't really have any education. I completely self-educated. Um, and I decided I wanted to, um, I decided that I wanted to leave when I was in my mid-30s. And what ended up happening is that, um, it took me eight years to educate myself, to read books, to watch movies while I was in the community. And then when I was 42 years old, I packed up my stuff, took my children and walked out the door. A month later, started a shoe brand. 
which in a year was being sold all over the world. Within two years, became creative director of Aperla. Within four years after I left, became the CEO of EWG, and now have written a best-selling book called Brazen, have a um, award-nominated show on Netflix called My Unorthodox Life, um, have um, built a talent management company, EWG, from a $70 million modeling agency into a $1.1 billion media conglomerate. Um, within two years throughout COVID, without an extra dollar of investment, and um, trying to think what else I can add to all my list. And, and I've just now launched a new shapewear brand where we've changed the way that color is put into clothing. We don't dye things, we heat fuse them, and that is plus five. And now, yeah, one more thing. I did have, I just have invented a new vibrator. It's gonna take a, a few months to get to you, but it's wonderful. <laughs> Okay. Well, uh, well, I, I will just listen <laughs> on that one. So let's go back uh, a, a, a little bit. You talk about the community. It's the Orthodox community. Yes. It's the extremist ultra Orthodox. I don't want to convince, I don't want to confuse it with regular Orthodox. There's modern Orthodox. There's plenty of Orthodox communities that don't live the way I do. It is just the extremist, the black hat, the Hasidic community, the yeshivish community. Those are the communities that I'm referring to and no education for women and particularly unkind to women. It's, it's, to them, it's not unkindness. It's what God said they have to do. So just to give you an example, when I first got married and I made a Shabbos, right? Like it's basically like a Thanksgiving every week. You have to, it's a multi-course meal. And I always had a lot of guests and my first Shabbos meal as a married woman, of course, as a teenager, right? Married woman, I'm sure it's not really accurate because I was a child. Um, my husband invited a bunch of his friends from yeshiva to come to my house for the Shabbos meal. I never made a Shabbos meal by myself. I was a newlywed wife with, you know, and I was literally a teenager. And all of a sudden I have to prepare a meal for all these people. So I did it. I prepare this meal. It took me, I can't even imagine, can't even begin to tell you how much time because it's literally, it's course after course after course. And you can't heat anything up on Shabbos. So everything has to be done in a way that it could be very complex. Anyway, I get there. I make the food. I serve the food. I set the table. I clean the table. I serve everybody. And I thought like my husband's going to be so happy with me. Our guests leave and my husband looks at me and he says, how dare you? And I was like, I Sorry, I'm I'm lost. He's like, why were you talking at the meal? I was like, I, sorry, I don't know what you mean. Why was I talking? You're like, you're a woman. This was a meal of men. You don't talk in front of a bunch of men. Now they're going to make fun of me in yeshiva that my wife is what's called a yatsanis, a, a a goer outer. You know, someone who has a voice, right? Who makes herself makes her. So I was like, so sorry. Let me understand this. I'm supposed to cook, serve, clean, set and then sit for three hours at a meal where I'm not supposed to speak? And the answer was, yes. That's what all my friends' wives do. So it's not that anyone is trying to hurt anyone. I always say this. I never, ever blamed my husband for our marriage because he was literally doing what he was taught he was supposed to do just as much as I was doing what I was taught I was supposed to do. He was told that I was not allowed to eat, speak at a meal. He was told that I have to be covered head to toe. He was told that he's my master and commander. So as much as he fulfilled those duties, it's not that he wanted to fulfill those duties. He didn't have a choice, just like I didn't have a choice. And we 
both thought that what we were doing was what God wanted. So I, I just want to be very careful about that. It's not the people. It's the laws. It's these archaic laws that have to go. Because I give you another example, right? A woman in my community, they're very, they're, they're kind of, uh, they're circuitous about this. So basically, women don't have to go to synagogue and they don't have to learn Torah, right? Those are not commandments that are made for women. And they say that, and they say, that's why we say every morning, thank you, God, for not making us a woman, because men have more commandments than women, and we're just so lucky we've got all these commandments. Okay. What they don't tell you is that it's not that women are not commanded, that they don't have a mitzvah to learn Torah or go to synagogue. It's that they're forbidden from it, which is a very, very different situation. So for example, it says in the Talmud, and they take this very seriously, it says in the Talmud that a man who educates his daughter is teaching her prostitution. And then it goes on and it says, this one is a favorite of mine. Why isn't a woman required to go to synagogue? Why isn't a woman required to study Torah? Because it will confuse her her poor little mind because she won't know which master to listen to. If her master on heaven tells her it's now time to pray, but her master on earth, her husband, tells her cook me a meal, what is the poor woman to do? Which master is she supposed to listen to? And so God in his kindness to this poor woman with her two masters has said, no, don't worry about synagogue and Torah. Those are time-related things. You've already got one master on earth. That's your husband. So just follow everything and do everything he says. So not okay <laughs> to put him out. Right, right. And somehow you figure out how to earn some money selling insurance. Is that right? When you have no education and you have um, no way of supporting yourself with a degree, you can sell. It was an easy, you know, thing to study for. And then I came into MetLife and I was still covered head to toe. Shaped a wig on my head, above my collarbone, below my elbow, below my knees, above my ankle, every part of my body covered except for my face and my hands. I must have looked like a nun slash librarian. Um, but I guess it was a very comforting look because, you know, I looked so serious and, you know, proper and they hired me and every week they would have this thing where you'd have to do cold calling. This was when cold calling was still legal, which was great for me because I didn't know anyone in the outside world. I had no one to call. Every call was going to be a cold call. So they would do this thing where every week they would make a contest of who, and you get like a 500 or a $1,000 bonus, I don't remember what it was, of how many cold call appointments you got, because obviously those are the most difficult. I won every single week that I worked there <laughs> because I had no one else. That's all I had was cold calling. So my goodness, I literally called anyone. And, you know, I, I, I thought of groups of people that were very interconnected and I sold to them. Um, and, you know, I'm a stubborn woman. So I just kept going until I got it done. And you did this all in secrecy. All in secrecy. No one had any clue. You know, I found out recently that my friends would talk about, like, where does Julia disappear to? 
Um, and they decided that I was a Mossad agent. <laughs> oh my God. Like that seemed more realistic than Julia working or Julia thinking of leaving the community, right? Like that was so not even part of the like zeitgeist. Like people just didn't leave. So it didn't occur to anyone that I was contemplating leaving. They thought, you know, I must be a spy. <laughs> it was oh really my God. Funny. I love that. I was like, nope, guys, not a spy. Sorry. Just want to leave the community. <laughs> Okay, so let's let's get to something that we haven't talked about in in you know real detail, but it's only in general detail. So you do this for give or take eight years. You put some money aside, and at a certain point, you make a decision: I'm leaving. Talk about that decision and what you remember from the moment you decided to leave. What it must have been like sleeping that night, knowing the next day what was about to happen. Take us inside that moment when you said, I'm out of here. It's actually two moments. Um, the first one is when I decided I wanted to leave. And the second one is when I actually walked out the door. Okay. So for me, the first step in my personal exodus was the acknowledgement that it's not me that's flawed because I find these rules egregious it's the rules themselves. It's the laws themselves. And that happened in my early thirties um, because my daughter, Miriam wanted to play soccer. She's incredibly sporty. She's won Spartan race twice and uh, she wanted to play soccer. And my husband told her she couldn't because since she's a girl, she could only wear skirts. And if she's playing soccer and the skirt lifts up and a man walking by the field, will see her knees, he'll get turned on and that will be her fault. Now, mind you, he's telling this to someone who's five or six years old. So let's not talk about the kind of man who gets turned on by a five or six-year-old's knees. Okay, let's just leave that aside. My little five-year-old or six-year-old daughter looks at him and says, okay, well, if I'm responsible for his sins, is he responsible for mine? And that's all it took because they had convinced me that I was somehow integrally and internally flawed, that I wasn't okay with the life I had. They could not convince me that my daughter was. I'd never spoken to her. She was an innocent child. She had no idea about anything. And yet in her mind, her brilliant mind, she's the youngest person in Stanford University history to ever give a class. She taught a class on augmented reality as a freshman. This is a girl who didn't own a computer or see a computer until she was 13 years old. And then five years later, she's giving a class on augmented reality. So her questioning things so innocently and so rationally gave me permission to say it's not me it's these laws i'm out and that's when i started educating myself and reading and got a job and did all these other things but then i actually had to walk out the door so as you said it's an eight-year gap i'm reading books i'm watching movies i'm making money i'm planning my escape blah 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 blah, blah. and then comes the moment where i have enough money everything is ready i can't push myself out the door i'm too scared just too scared. I couldn't do it. It's like, um, it's literally time travel. It's so hard to explain to people. They don't understand. I literally lived in the 1800s. That's my life. My life was so far removed from the modern 21st century that to leave the community of any, everyone, you know, in every way that you've lived to go into a world where there's bars and clubs and mixed schools and dances. And it's just such a, foreign world you can't even contemplate how you can do it and I just 
decided I'd rather kill myself. So I basically started starving myself to death because I figured I don't want to ruin my children's chance at a good marriage because again, just like in the 1800s, that's all that that mattered. Who you marry? Um, and so I knew if their mother committed suicide, no one would ever marry them. So I figured if I starve myself to death, people would just think I'm anorexic. And, you know, anorexia is not so bad. That means if you have 30 babies and, you know, you stay skinny, so great, who cares, right? So it has much less of a stigma. Obviously, anorexia is terrible. That I'm not trying to say it to be flippant. I'm just saying in that world, it's not as much of a stigma. And so um, I was literally down to a weight that I don't want to say publicly. It was, it was that. I was probably six months away from accomplishing killing myself. Um, and my daughter comes home and she's crying hysterically. And you know me, Matt. We're not criers in my family. You've seen us. We've been through hell and back and we just, we're not criers. Um, of course, we all cry, but I'm just saying we're, we're it comes very infrequently. And she was bawling hysterically. And the reason she was is because she was accused of cheating because her answer was too good to be written by a girl. And that's it. That was it. That second, it just, it, it just, the rage and it exploded in my mind. And I realized that I was being so selfish because my killing myself would end my suffering, my pain. But go 20 years from now, Miriam would be me. But Sheva would be me. They would be just as unhappy as I was. And so I realized that I have to leave. If I couldn't do it for myself, I had to do it for my kids. And I literally, it wasn't planned. I didn't organize it. I didn't think, okay, tomorrow's a day. Let me book a hotel. It wasn't like that at all. I literally packed my stuff and walked out the door. And no idea where, where I was going. No idea where I would spend that first night. Um, literally drove into Manhattan. Somehow got in, I was on 47th because that was an area that felt more familiar because it's the Diamond District and there's a lot of religious Jews around there. And as I'm driving around there, I see this big sign with a W and to me it meant I didn't know what it actually meant I didn't know about the W hotels but I thought it was like welcome <laughs> right. I was like that's the one and so my first night in the 21st century I spent at the W hotel in the middle of Times Square <laughs> oh. and it was the first time in my life I'd ever been in a hotel room by myself if you can imagine such a thing and you had four kids you left them behind four children well I didn't leave them behind I took Miriam um, and Shlomo was in Israel in Yeshiva, Bacheva was in Israel, she was already married. So the one that I left was Aaron because I knew I couldn't take him with me. Right. But what we ended up doing with my husband is we made a deal that as long as I came home for every Shabbos, which I did, and put my shaito on my hand and pretended to still be married to him, he would let me go back and spend time with my son. And so for the first, I would say, five, six years, I spent almost every weekend there and probably three, four nights a week um, with my going back into prison, going back to the place I hated because that was the only way I could see my son out. It's an incredible story. And you then launch your first business. Yeah. Talk about that, <laughs> Julia Hart Shoes and Prila Perla. But where did that idea come from? You know, you have entrepreneurship, you know, running across and down, but that's a very big leap from, you know, selling insurance in the dark of night, so to speak, <laughs> you know, yeah. bolting 
and starting a shoe brand, which becomes pretty much an overnight success. So it's thank you. And yeah, you know what I think it is? Ignorance. <laughs> I had no idea how crazy it was to start a shoe brand. I mean, fashion had been my passion my entire life. Um, the first handbag I was ever gifted, I was three and a half years old. I was in Rome in an internment camp on my way to America. And this little five-year-old boy um, saved up like quarters that people in the internment camp would give him to do like odd jobs. And he bought me my first Italian handbag. And that was it. That was it. That's when my love of fashion began. And I was drawing my entire life on everything I could find, shoes, clothing, handbags, you name it. Um, and it was had been my dream. As I mean, I really don't remember when it wasn't my dream. I taught myself how to sew. I taught myself how to make patterns. I did all these things in the community, but of course I wasn't supposed to. Um, and so to me, when I left, I was like, well, I'm a time traveler. I've time traveled 300 years. A shoe brand? Of course I can start a shoe brand. If I can time travel, I can start a shoe brand. And that's really how I went into it. And your first meeting of substance about the shoe brand, talk about that. Who was it with? What oh, was discussed? Gosh. Well, it's funny. The first meeting was with my first partner. Um, and the original idea was for me to be part of a, a brand that this man had purchased. Um, he wanted me to design shoes for the brand. And then when the deal fell through, he was like, well, I'll fund your own brand. And I was like, great, because here are my 49 designs. And here are what the shoes are going to look like. And here's what I want to make them out of. And here's the concept of the brand. And of course, I had everything already planned and prepared. Um, and my concept was to eradicate the thought of suffering for beauty, to create a shoe that was both luxurious and comfortable. Um, and then at that time, that was radically unheard of. And I got yelled at all the time, Julia, if you want to be in fashion, if you want people to take you seriously, do not use the word comfort. Comfort is a dirty word in the fashion industry. Women should be suffering for beauty. And I look at myself, I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I just time traveled and left every person I know so that I wouldn't have to suffer anymore. So that my body was my own and that I could enjoy and luxuriate in being a woman. Women should not be suffering for beauty. What idiot man decided that how many hundreds of years ago? Why are we still doing it today? Outrageous. And so I fought that concept. And I think, you know, you've seen, it's interesting. Um, three years later, when I was creative director of La Perla, the same person, an editor, I'm not going to say from which magazine, but a very, very powerful editor, called me and said, Julia, you've changed the conversation. Comfort's not a dirty word anymore. And that's what it's about. To me, every industry I've gone into, it's been about turning it upside down and fixing the things that just because they've been done or they're what's accepted doesn't mean it's what should be done and what should exist. Because if I believed in listening to what's done and what's accepted, I'd still be in upstate New York making Shabbos because that's what was done there. That's what was accepted there. But I didn't because I don't care what people tell me is normal or acceptable. I see the future, not the present. The way you describe life in the community is really, really brutal for women. 
why don't more people leave? Let me ask you this question. It's such a Jewish thing, right? Answering a question with a question. Sure. Why didn't women rebel in the 1800s when they lived the same life I did? Yeah. I mean, because it's, it's all they know, because it's what they think is normal. And the genius of religion is that it forces you to police yourself because it tells you this is what God wants. And who are you to question God? I'll never forget, my mother once said to me when I wanted to get a divorce from my husband after a week of marriage, and I said, I'm not happy. He wants me to be someone I'm not. I'm not quiet. I can't be this little demure, shy, silent woman. It's just not who I am. And her response to me was, well, where in the Torah does it say you have to be happy? Right. That's, and so when people, when I first came out with my, my, my show and the book, and I talked about what was going on there, there was this huge surge of my orthodox life and women posting pictures of themselves with their 11 children and all of that. And they're saying, we're happy, we're happy. And I always say to people, it's not a happiness contest. You go to the women in the 1800s, millions of women all over the world who lived exactly like my community. How much money do you wanna make a bet that if you asked them if they were happy, 90% of them would have said yes. Right, because that's all because they know. That's all they knew. You can't, you know, there's this concept of the adjacent possible, which is a scientific hypothesis that elucidates why inventions occur in clusters. What do I mean by that? When Marconi was inventing the telephone in Italy, simultaneously that Alexander Graham Bell was inventing the telephone in America. You've got Nikola Tesla in Europe. You've got, you know, Thomas in America inventing electricity. There is no exception to this rule. The Gutenberg Press in France, when then I can't remember the name of the other press in England. All inventions, all have always occurred in clusters. All of a sudden, 20 people or two people or 11 people invent the same thing, work on the same thing. And so there is a scientific hypothesis that elucidates why that's so. And it's called the theory of the adjacent possible. And what it shows is that we as humans have a, how shall we say this, a, an inability to imagine, to conceive of that which is not adjacent, which is not next to our current possible. We cannot imagine a world too far removed from our own. Our minds are not elastic enough. So for example, in the year 800, no one could have invented a television because first electricity needed to be invented. Then olfactory lenses needed to be invented. Then fiber optic cables needed to be invented and then a television could be invented. So there was so much removed from a television as to make it completely impossible and unimaginable. And that's what it's like in a fundamentalist community. The outside world is so far removed from your adjacent possible as to be unimaginable. So just like women in the 1500s and the 1600s and the 1700s, the 1800s, they weren't allowed to be educated. They were married off, whether they liked it or not. They had absolutely no right. They couldn't own land. They couldn't, they didn't inherit. Um, they weren't allowed to divorce. All the rules that apply to my life now, all women historically had those rules and yet they didn't revolt. Why? Because any life outside of that was just so far removed from their imagination as to be completely inconceivable. And that's why women stay. 
because they cannot contemplate a world where that's not the case. And you come from a big family, but only, I think, your sister Hannah, you still have a, a nice relationship no, with. No, I wish. E- I wish. Even no. Hannah now? When the season one came out, the communities of the fa- my family members that came on the show, so my hus- my ex-husband Yosef and his fiance came on the show, and my sister Hannah came on the show. So my ex-husband and my sister were given the same ultimatum by two different communities. And that is either denounce your sister or denounce your ex-wife and don't have anything to do with her or we're kicking you out of the community. My ex-husband's response to that was to say, excuse my language, fuck you, take off his black hat and leave the community and move into the community with his fiance. And in that community where they're much more modern Orthodox, they got much less grief. And the few people who tried to give them grief, both he and who is now his wife, his wife, they literally, I saw the texts, I saw the emails. They literally said, she's family. You don't like her. You don't like us. Goodbye. And guess what happened? It was fine. Everyone left them alone. They stood their ground and it was all good. My sister, on the other hand, caved. And she chose her community over me and has not spoken to me once since the show came out. And even with all the hell that I went through and the divorce and being accused of all the, literally the craziest things. I mean, I think the only one I haven't been accused of is witchcraft, which, hey, may be coming in a week or two. Who knows? But with all the stuff that came on my head and before the whistleblower came out, before people knew that it was a lie, before all of this, when people really thought that I was a bad person, silence, nothing, not one single word. Oh my gosh. So... (sighs) I don't know where we go from here, Juliet, so much. I know. Tell me you, you, it's, you, it's been a journey, honey. Well, Let's yeah, and, and uh, turbulent to say the least, but uh, a remarkable consistency, you know, that mm-hmm. your passion and conviction, commitment to driving yourself forward, protecting your children, um, going back to Miriam and wanting her to have those opportunities and she said she was very early on a nonconformist, and that really drove you. And I know she's still that way today. That's right. It's been a really turbulent couple of years for you. Oh boy! <laughs> ha, ha, I mean, almost, 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 uh, almost unimaginable. We'll <laughs> dig into that just a little bit, but sure. talk about the journey to Netflix because that's what really brought your story and brought Julia Hart into living rooms and you know all yeah. over america and all over the world and really made you in many ways a global phenomena uh <laughs> as an outlier who left the community to tell a story brought to life in my unorthodox life on netflix two seasons in the bank talk about that decision to tell your story in a very public way oh, i think it's probably the hardest thing i've ever done well second hardest thing first hardest thing was leaving second hardest was making the decision to make my story public. And people don't know this, but until La Perla, I didn't tell a single human being my story. Nobody, not a friend, not anyone I dated, no one. Because I divided my world, my life into two distinct pieces. One, when I lived in my community was what was done to me. And two, from the day I left, what I accomplished. And until I had something that I had accomplished, I didn't want to talk about my past 
because I didn't want to be defined by what was done to me. I want to be defined by what I can accomplish. And so it was only when I became creative director of Apurla that I felt, okay, I've accomplished a little. People are starting to understand what I'm capable of. I'm starting to build. And now I feel safe to tell my story. But I told my story to probably five people. Um, I was very, very reticent about it. And, you know, it's a very painful and difficult thing to do, especially because I've seen what happens to other people who live in the community who talk about that. They get attacked, called liars, thieves, con artists, all this stuff. I knew that if I did it, that community would come after me with everything they had. Um, and so it was very frightening, very frightening, terrifying. Um, I think the first two weeks before the show came out, I don't think I slept at all. I was a wreck. I was so scared. Um, and of course now with, you know, all the, the difficulty that I've had in the last year and a half with the divorce and all the crazy accusations and having to hold the line and just know that at a certain point, the truth has to come out. I mean, you can't change the past, make up a story and stick to it forever. There will be a moment when there will be document collection. There will be a moment when proof is gonna be required for all of these accusations. And guess what happens? Every time that it was time to prove all the things that I did, the cases get dropped, the cases get withdrawn because you can't prove something that didn't happen, right? But I had to stay and wait and survive until discovery, until it was time to put, you know, uh, evidence into court. And now here we are again. Um, interestingly enough, we, we filed a, um, a motion to compel in my lawsuit because guess what? We haven't received a single document. No discovery, zero, nothing. Because the truth is the truth. You can't make up the truth. You cannot. You can do it for a while. What does Winston Churchill say, right? A lie gets halfway around the world before truth has time to put its pants on. So yeah, I had to live through a year and a half of people thinking the worst imaginable things about me and having enough inner courage and strength to say, hold it, just hold it, keep smiling, keep walking, keep breathing, keep living, keep eating. You are gonna wait and survive until the day that the truth comes out. And now, here we are. Now, slowly, the truth starts to come out. The whistleblower comes, my act, the gay accusations against me get dropped. All of a sudden, as evidence keeps building, you have to start to realize what has, what has been done to me, the egregious evil of what has been done to me. And um, it's, it's definitely, I thought I was a strong person after I left the community. In a way that was nothing compared to this because this was so public, so public and so painful. And I think that um, after everything I'd gone through and how much I'd fought to be my own person, to not allow men to take things away from me, to not allow men to destroy me, I felt like I was right back when I started. I had built a business. It's just a fact. I was the CEO, not a co-CEO, not a half a CEO, the CEO, the only CEO. And he was a non-executive, you know, head of a board. I built a billion dollar business quantified by Jeffrey's bank. 
I have letters from bankers, from investors, from everyone saying, Julia, you're a visionary. What you've created here is extraordinary. Under the most difficult circumstances through COVID, when the world was closed, when every other business was failing, I was building. We lost only 33% during COVID. Most, brand, most companies in my industry, as I'm sure you know, Matt, lost over 70%. I worked 20-hour days. I built something of tremendous value. And all someone needed to do is scream, clothing, uh, shopping, da, da, da. That's all it took. That's all it took. It was unbelievable. I couldn't believe it that in this century, in the 21st century, how little documents mattered, how little anything mattered. I was just a celebrity and he was the businessman and that's all that mattered. And that was it. And all this pretty much was documented in season two on my unorthodox life. As the cameras are rolling and this is all unfolding, that's got to add a level of pressure, I would think. To I thought about it for a long time. Do I just stop the filming and tell Netflix, guys, I'm sorry, I've got this craziness going on. And then I realized two things. Number one, I don't break contracts with people. <laughs> I, mean, I gave my word. My word is my word. That's it. They put money in it. They trusted in me. They supported me. And I was going to do what I promised that I would do. And I realized that if I didn't, then he won already. Then he'd already won. He'd already taken away what I had built if I allowed pain and sadness and shock to prevent me from doing that, which I had planned to do. So that was part one. And then part two um, was, I just thought about how many millions of women have gone through what I've gone through. Millions, millions and millions and millions, not publicly, not as openly as me, but private suffering is very much suffering. And there are just, you know, if I tell you how many, I think it's now over 700,000 DMs, letters, messages that I've received from women who have left abusive relationships, who have walked out of the door of um, fundamentalist communities, who have started businesses. Um, I was recently honored at ICON, at the ICON event in London Fashion Week. And it was so beautiful. And really, honestly, with everything that I've gone through to get recognized and for people to understand what I've worked so hard on meant so much to me. And I'm so appreciative to ICON. I think, you know, my favorite moment uh, at that ICON event where I was honored was as I was leaving, this woman comes over to me and she says, I just want you to know that you changed you and Miriam changed my my and my daughter's life and she continues and says that she was in a very abusive physically abusive relationship um for I don't know if she said 17 years or 20 years a very very long time and she never had the courage to walk out the door and she said Julia I watched your show I binged it in one night and the next morning I packed my stuff and my daughter and I walked out the door. You saved my life. And then she said, and my daughter recently came out as a gay woman. And when I hugged her and told her, I'm so proud of you that you came forward. She said, well, Miriam did it, so can I. So that's what it's about. It's about our story, helping other women achieve what they want in their lives and telling them and showing them it's never too late. And that's the second reason I did it, because I wanted women to see that with all the help 
And with all the accusations, with all the pain and all the craziness, you stand strong, you can survive. It's an incredible story. And, you know, part of your journey now is not only, you know, in the celebrity world and a media star and a fashion icon, but probably most important, Julia, you become an inspiration as you just shared that story with people not only here, but all over the world, and you're traveling all over the world. Talk about that. You become a really passionate, effective advocate for people all over the world, inclu including some of the most challenging places in the world, uh, <laughs> like, like, the, sure. like the Ukraine. So let's talk about that advocacy work, which is such a big part of Julia Hart in 2023 and beyond. Thank you, Matt. And, you know, I think it's, again, as you said, it's all about freedom. In the end, everything I do, whether it's freeing you from pain of wearing clothing that's not comfortable or, or freeing you from having someone else in control of your destiny and giving you financial freedom, whatever it is, it's always about freedom. And I've never been politically active in my life. This is the first time in my life I've ever been politically active. When they repealed Roe versus Wade, I felt I had no choice because I've lived in a community where your body's not your own. I've lived in a world where you don't have autonomy as to who you love, how you love, whether you have children, you don't have children, no autonomy over your own body. I will not let this happen in this country. And so I became very politically active here. And then I started, that kind of engendered a more global activism. And then I started realizing that this sisterhood that we've created, it's alive and it and if we can help one another globally what we can accomplish is incomprehensible and so i looked at ukraine which to me was the epitome of freedom fighting because here they are they're under they're understaffed they're underfunded they have no weaponry they have no this they have no that and they're not fighting for land they're not fighting for power they're fighting to live their lives authentically as free people. And so I felt like I had to go. And so I took an ambulance. Um, I bought a bunch of ambulances with a group of people and I took them from Slovakia and I drove them all the way up to the front lines in Bakhmut in January, in the middle of the major fighting in Bakhmut at the time. There was no barely any electricity, no cell phone service. It was dark half the time. Um, almost got blown up twice, but luckily did not, and was just so moved and inspired by these people's determination to be free. You know, I gave up my family, my children, my, my friends, my community, everything I knew for freedom. They gave up their lives. They gave up their lives. And then um, I went to Rwanda because uh, in Rwanda and many other third world countries, which is something I would never have thought of. Um, Women, when they menstruate, can't go to school. They don't go to work because they don't have maxi pads. They don't have tampons. And so when they menstruate, they're literally forced to stay home. And so I walked around with this uh, group called the Body Agency Collective, and we handed out menstrual cups to remote villagers so that because these menstrual cups could last for 10 years and they just constantly get reused. And this is what gives them mobility. And we worked with companies that do seed funding to help these women buy chickens so that they could lay eggs, so that they could buy land, so that they can create value and, and businesses and be self-supporting. Um, and then I 
I led a march recently um, for women in Iran because I think, again, biggest freedom fighters, these women, they were gassed, they were poisoned, they were arrested, they were beaten, they were killed, and they refused to be silenced. They keep fighting for freedom. And now, with what's going on in Israel, I still haven't figured out how, but I'm really trying to get there. Because I feel like if I went to Ukraine to the front lines and risked being blown up and did all of that and slept in a barracks and, and without heat, and if I did that for them, what's going on in Israel right now with the, un, the true murder of babies and innocents and this, this, this insanity that there is any, any kind of excuse for barbaric cruelty is I can't, I can't handle it. I can't stand it. But so far, I haven't figured out a way to get there. So I'll let you know if I manage to get there. I, 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 I am betting on you to find a way. I'm trying. And out of all this chaos comes another new business. Yes. Can we talk about your latest enterprise? Oh, I'm so excited about this. So I um, invented this new product, which is basically turns shapewear upside down. Um, so, you know, shapewear has always been extraordinarily ugly. It's always beige, white, and black. And for the men out there who think it's because otherwise it would show under clothing, guys, have you never undressed women with beautiful blue, red, green, purple lingerie? That's not a thing. The reason shapewear isn't colorful is not because it would show up under your, over your clothing. It's because when you dye something and you stretch it, what ends up happening is, I, and I know no, your audience isn't going to see it, but just for you, when you dye something and you stretch it, you get those nasty white lines and you get the color distortion. And that's why if you walk down the street and you see someone wearing a size too small on them, you'll see those lines because dyed clothing is not meant to be stretched past a certain point. And think about shapewear. Shapewear is a compression garment. It's the stretchiest thing there is. And it comes this big in the package. And then it has to stretch to fit your body and then suck you back in. So it could only be beige, white, and black because those three colors, white when you stretch it, still looks white. I mean, here's a piece of white. White is still white. It's just white. Beige is the same thing. Black is the same thing. And so that's why historically shapewear has always been horrifically ugly. Women $8 billion worth of women wear shapewear. $8 billion worth of women hide that they wear shapewear. Nobody wants anybody to know that they wear shapewear. Um, and so I figured, okay, I'm going to create a shapewear where women don't have to feel embarrassed, ashamed, uncomfortable. It's always the same thing. You never feel confident if you're trying to hide something. You spend the whole day thinking, oh my God, did my skirt lift up and someone saw the bottom of my shapewear? Or can they see the lot? It's this constant conversation in your head of, of insecurity and lack of confidence. And I want to eradicate that from women. I want women to put on my shapewear and then forget about the clothing that they're wearing because they can enjoy their day and be fully present because they know they look good and they feel good and nothing's going to move anywhere. And so my shapewear, um, we do not dye our clothes. We heat fuse them. It's called... Uh, what did I call it? Powerbomb 2.0. I played with it in the past year since I was going through divorce. I was like, wait a minute, since I'm not doing this anyway, let me perfect it. So we did. And it looks like gorgeous lingerie. It's colorful. It's patterned. You can stretch it from here to eternity. It doesn't budge. So for the first time in history, if a woman is wearing shapewear and someone is undressing her, she's not going to be embarrassed. She's going to be like, yes, look at my fabulous lingerie. And no one will ever know. 
Um, and then I realized once I fixed that, I thought, okay, I'm done. Now I've created this fabulous shapewear. But then I started speaking to people and I found out that there's other things about shapewear that women hate. Number two is that shapewear is a compression garment. Compression is very thick, right? It's a thick substance. If you put something that's a quarter of an inch thick on each side of you, you're gaining a half an inch in width. If you put something that's an eighth of an inch on each side, you're getting a half an inch in width. Now, sorry, a quarter of an inch in width. A half of an inch in width is the next size up. Women would tell me that they can't button their pants. They can't zipper their dress when they're wearing the shapewear because don't forget, you're adding an extra layer of clothing. You're expanding your width. So until my shaper came along, you had a choice. You could be lumpy and narrow or smooth and wide, right? So I realized, hey, if I was able to heat fuse color into material, can I heat fuse all the layers of, of compression into one? And the answer is yes. Ours is as thin as a piece of paper. It does not add to your girth, to your width. So for the first time, it could be smooth and thinner and not wider. And the last thing is that shapewear is not by cup size, it's by clothing size. So what is shapewear? It's a compression garment. So if your bodysuit goes above your breasts, excuse my language here, but it's what it's called in the industry, it's called pancake boot, right? You're compressing your breasts. No woman on earth wants pancake boot. That is just not sexy and it is certainly not comfortable. So what do brands do? Some brands will cut a hole so that you have to wear a bra and your shapewear and you've got two straps from the bra, two straps from the shaper, back from the bra, back from the shaper. It's incredibly uncomfortable, very tedious and hot. We ran so many layers. So my shaper is the first in the world that it's not only sold by dress size, it's sold by cup size. So you can be a large double D, you could be in a large A, you could be a large F. The bra is built into the shapewear. And so, um, the feedback we've been getting, and this is my favorite feedback I've ever received, and I've gotten it from a lot of people, is it's a boob job, tummy tuck, and liposuction in $198 bodysuit, which is literally what it is, because think about it. It compresses the material, it holds it in your bra, and now all of a sudden your A cup looks like a C cup. It's amazing. So I'm really excited about the product. We've sold out in a bunch of sizes, so if your size is not there, I apologize profusely. We've reordered, things are coming, um, and just... We're going to open pre-ordering soon so that the people who weren't able to buy it the first time around could get it the second time around. And um, next in that brand is the first ever in the world, super excited, I'm making shapewear swimwear. So you can walk on the beach, look fabulous, have a tankini and those little boy shorts that like Halle Berry wore on uh, the James Bond movie. Look like you're wearing the most beautiful bathing suit. It's as thin as a bathing suit. It feels like a bathing suit. It dries like a bathing suit. You go into water like a bathing suit. And yet it's completely, fully, legally allowed to be called shapewear because it is a fully compression garment. And it's all direct to consumer. Do you see a retail piece? Where, so does, right this, where now, does it go? So right now it's all direct to consumer next year. Um, well, actually, I take that back. In a, a few weeks, it's going to be in some stores in New Jersey, some like um, boutiques in New Jersey. And then next year, it will go into the bigger retail places because um, as you'll see next year, I also have swimwear, I have tank tops, I have all sorts of things coming. Uh, and so we wanted to wait until all the products arrive before we make our stand in the retail space. 
So much like New York, among the many things they talk about, and they say New York, the city that never sleeps, the same can be said of you. <laughs> terrible. What else is, you know, bouncing around your head in terms of what's next? Is it just developing what you're doing now, moving from shapewear to swimwear? But I got to think you're real tech savvy. I know we talked about that when yeah. we were on stage together a couple of years ago. What else, you know, if we're doing this again, three, four, five years from now, what do you think we might be talking about? Well, I've invented a new vibrator. I'm very, very excited about this. I'm going to make a lot of women very happy. So just I'm letting you know the week that it comes out, if all of a sudden you can't find women anywhere on the streets, it's because they're at home using my vibrator and nobody's moving. Um, so I'm really excited about that. And then um, I talk about a little bit on the show Heart Sphere. I have this concept that I've been working on for quite some time now. And of course, I had to pause it because of the divorce. Um, but once this divorce is over and I get my company back and my life, I don't know if my life will ever be normal, but let's just say my life is a little bit more peaceful, hopefully. Um, and that time, because it's such a time drain, the constant motions and ugh, the courts and the this and the that. Anyway, once that's over and I have my money back and my company back, I'm going to start working on my heart sphere, which I think can change if we do it the way I think, if it will go the way I think it will go, it could change the face of communication. So fingers crossed. I keep you posted. <laughs> well, there's no betting against you. That's for sure. And uh, I can't thank you enough for doing this. You are an inspiration and that you've traveled to some of the most challenging places in the world uh, to help women, to share your story. Uh, well, we have a season three of the show on Netflix. I'm legally not allowed to discuss it. <laughs> All right. I'm going to take that as a yes. And uh, not allowed I, to say I, I certainly think that we are not done seeing you uh, in our living rooms uh, and uh, can't wait to see you next. Uh, you've always been really gracious to Isla and I having us over for dinners. I, I can't. Well, you guys have to come for Shabbos soon because I miss you guys. I, I really I, do. Like I, there's this family bond, you know, uh, we would love to come and, uh, and we'll see you soon, Julia. Thanks so much for Thank doing you, this. Man. It's such a pleasure hanging with you. Really, really enjoy it. You're so amazing. You're just, there needs to be more men like you in the world. If there were more men like you, we would not be in the situation we are in now. That's for sure. Well, I think, <laughs> I think one's enough of me, but thanks so much. <laughs> Take care.